He's Hacker. I like a good serial killer documentary. He hasn't taken the pounding that wide receivers take. Uh, it's just a pound job, and, and guys are tired towards that, that four minutes. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. I would be lying to you if I said I had not heard things. They're like a bad rash. You hear a lot of things. Some are true, some aren't. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Wednesday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark a little earlier tonight. And for Rick Ballou the rest of the week, glad you're with us here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. With Dylan Denmark, I'm the Hacker Ryan Green, and we are inside of an hour till a pretty big basketball game in the Southeastern Conference, a battle of top 25 teams, the Florida Gators, the Alabama Crimson Tide that will be on ESPN, it's either ESPN or ESPN2. It's on one of the big ones tonight. But Mark Wise of the ESPN family of networks who actually called Florida and Georgia this past Saturday, he's actually going to call Florida and Vanderbilt on the SEC network this upcoming Saturday. Mark is going to join us in about a little under 20 minutes as we preview. Florida and Alabama, and isn't it nice, Gator fans, to have a basketball game on the 21st day of February that has a lot of meaning, that hasn't always been the case as of late with the University of Florida, but they are one of the hottest teams in the SEC. I saw Joe Lenardi had them up as a seven seed in the latest bracketology, so a big one tonight. We'll talk about it all with Mark Wise of the ESPN family of networks that comes up in a little under 20 minutes from right now also at the top of the seven o'clock hour my buddy Clay Harbor former tight end right here in Jacksonville for the Jacksonville Jaguars he will stop by to give his thoughts on Josh Allen on Calvin Ridley kind of an off-season outlook for the Jags from a former Jag wide receiver or a tight end rather Clay Harbor he joins us coming up at seven o'clock this evening. We also have Jake Wimberly coming on the program tonight. Who is Jake Wimberly, you ask? Well, we're going to begin there because every night here on Hacker After Dark, we give you a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? No big deal. It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. So Jake Wimberly is actually a buddy of mine going back quite a few years, as a matter of fact. He and I used to uh, write for the same website. He's in Mississippi. I'm obviously here in Jacksonville. He hosts an afternoon sports talk radio show at 105.9 in Jackson, Mississippi, and he's an SEC guy. I mean, when you do sports radio in Jackson, Mississippi, let me tell you something. You are an SEC guy. That is a large, large portion of of your show, and Jake does a very good job with that. And also with that, Jake's been in sports radio about 10 years. Prior to that, he had a career outside the sports radio field that had to deal with mathematics, had to deal with number crunching, decimal points, kind of the analytics that we talk about now in the world of sports. So Jake, every time this time of year, late February, early March, will release his conference outlooks coming into the 2024 this year, the college football season. And today it picked up a little bit of traction here locally because Jake Wimberly did his SEC predictions 
He had Texas finishing 12-0, and by the way. And for Jake Wimberly's credit, he picked Michigan this time last year to win the national title in 2023. So he absolutely nailed that. So you got to give the guy credit where credit's due. But anyway, today when he did his SEC outlook for 2024, he had, I believe, Texas 12-0, and which probably should have been the big story, but it wasn't here. I'll tell you why in a moment. He had Georgia 11-1. and He had Ole Miss 11-1 and on the way down. I think he had Alabama 8-4, and right? Wasn't great for Alabama. But then you go down and you go down and you go down, and then at the very bottom, he had Florida, based on his formula, his analytics formula, going 2-10. and 2-10 and for the Florida Gators. Now, does one guy's analytical formula in the month of February mean anything when it comes to games that are going to be played in August? Of course not. But, Gator fan, I think you need to wrap your mind around this because this is going to happen a lot. This is going to happen the entire offseason. It happened last week when one of those over-under win-loss totals came out. Florida was at five and a half. Today, an analytics formula had Florida at 2-10. and 10. Do I think the Gators are going to go 2-10? and 10? No. But find me six wins on that schedule. It arguably, arguably, is the hardest schedule that I've ever seen in 35 years of watching college football. Florida plays 11 Power 5 opponents. 11. They have eight conference games. Their out-of-conference is Miami, Florida State, and Central Florida. Again, show me six wins. Can they beat Miami? Yeah, they can. Is it an absolute certainty? Of course not. Can they beat Texas A&M? Yeah, they can. Is it an absolute certainty? Of course not. And you can go on down the line. Tennessee. Kentucky, UCF, you say, well, they'll beat UCF. Will they? UCF just got K.J. Jefferson to play quarterback for them. K.J. Jefferson put a 40 spot on Florida last year when he was at Arkansas in a Razorbacks victory. There are a lot of problems for Florida coming into this year. The roster still isn't great. You're going to have talk about Billy Napier being on the hot seat and in the entire offseason, we're just at the beginning. We're only in February. Wait till March and April and when those preseason magazines start coming out in May and June. I mean, it is going to be negative when it comes to the Florida Gators. And going back to the schedule, after the cocktail party here, right, they play Georgia, are they going to beat them? Probably not. They're at Texas. They play LSU and maybe the best Ole Miss team in decades. And then they go to Dope Campbell to play Florida State. I mean, it is brutal, man. Absolutely brutal. It's like the perfect storm. Hot seat talk for the head coach. A fan base starving for a winner. And at this point, starving to just see something better on the field. And oh, by the way, you mix in the hardest football schedule that University of Florida may ever have. Again, I don't think that's too far-fetched a statement. It may be the hardest football schedule in the history of Florida football. 
ESPN.com last week came out with their preseason top 25. They're way too early preseason top 25. Florida had nine opponents on that thing. Nine teams they're going to play that were in the ESPN.com preseason way too early top 25. So we'll talk to Jake Wimberly about his analytics. I don't know if you'll agree with it. I will tell you I agreed in talking to him earlier with some of the things that he said. Some of the things that kind of rolled my eyes, but everything he said was interesting. And he didn't throw stuff against a wall. If you like analytics, pro football focus, money ball, that sort of stuff, I think you'll find the conversation interesting. Why did he have Florida going 2-10? and 10? That is outrageous, right? Well, we'll let him explain it. And you can get his thoughts, and you can come to your own conclusion, your own opinion when you hear that conversation coming up at the bottom of the 7 o'clock hour. As we mentioned, coming up in less than 10 minutes, Mark Wise of the ESPN family of networks. He was on the call up in Athens for Florida's win over Georgia on Saturday. He will be on the call for Florida and Vanderbilt this Saturday on the SEC Network. And tonight we're going to have him on as we are inside of an hour till tip-off of Florida and Alabama. Big game for the Gators. And again, isn't it nice that on February the 21st, we can talk about Florida playing in a big game? Give Todd Golden credit. I was critical of him. I'm sure some of you Gator basketball fans were as well. But whatever has happened to that team in the last month, they've been a lot of fun to watch. Going into Rupp Arena, beating Kentucky going into uh, a place like Georgia, Stegman Coliseum, knocking off Mike White, their former head coach in the Bulldogs, absolutely destroying Bruce Pearl and the Auburn Tigers. They have been a lot of fun to watch. Now, tonight's probably a tough putt. Is it a house money game for Florida? They're on the road, a team that's ranked higher than them. Yeah, maybe. Keep in mind, Florida does play Alabama twice in the next two weeks, Alabama will make the return trip to Gainesville coming up in a couple of weeks. But tonight is kind of a, a big game in the conference, and it really got me thinking, and I'm going to talk to Mark about this. You know, SEC is football country, right? It just means more. The passion and the tradition of SEC football, Southeastern Conference pigskin. Do you realize, maybe you do, maybe you don't, if you don't, prepare yourself accordingly. The Southeastern Conference right now is probably the best college basketball conference in America. They probably are the best college basketball conference in America. The only other conference that would have even an argument is the Big 12. The SEC is far superior to the ACC. The SEC is far superior to the Big 10. The SEC, the Pac-12 still exists in college basketball, at least for this year, is far superior to them. It's been a good year in the Southeastern Conference. It's been fun to watch. And I don't like the transfer portal. I've said repeatedly I don't like it when it comes to college basketball. But I've gotten over that and I've begun to accept it. And what the reality is, if you want to like college basketball moving forward, you need to prepare yourself for four to five to six new players on your team every year, whether that's true freshmen or whether that's guys from the portal. 
You look at Florida, the eight guys that play the most for the Gators, six of them were not there last year. They have two freshmen that play a bunch, and they got four transfers that play a bunch. The only two guys that really play off of last year's team are Riley Kugel and uh, Richard, Will Richard. So, look, do I love it? No, but I'm at the point now where I understand it's the reality. I accept it for what it is, and it's fun to watch these guys come together one year, two years, however long it is. Todd Golden has built a very good roster at the University of Florida in only year two, and for all those people, for all those people that loved Mike White and didn't want to see Mike White go, I used to work with a couple of them in middays. Love you, Matt. Love you, Joe. You guys were wrong. Not just them. A lot of people were. Mike White was not the answer at Florida. And I don't know if Todd Golden is yet. The sample size is still really small. But I can tell you this. Todd Golden's got Florida playing a lot better than Mike White had him playing towards the end of his tenure in Gainesville. Todd Golden's doing great things in the portal. He's doing well in recruiting. Things Mike White was not doing a great job of. Matt Hayes. Yeah. So I love Matt. Matt's my guy. But And there's a lot of people here on the station. A couple of morning guys, if memory serves. We're all about Mike White. Mike White this and Mike White that. No, 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 no. You see what Mike White's doing at Georgia. By the way, Todd Golden has beat him all four times that they have played each other. So I'm happy Gator basketball is relevant at the end of February. I'm happy they have a big game tonight against the Alabama Crimson Tide, and I'm happy we have Mark Wise coming on to talk about it in a matter of moments. Jaguar fans, we're not forgetting about you. There's a lot of Jaguar talk coming up as well. Again, former Jaguar tight end, my friend Clay Harbor, joins us at the top of the 7 o'clock hour as we'll get into free agency. We'll get into the thoughts on Josh Allen and Calvin Ridley and kind of give you Clay Harbor's off-season outlook, if you will, for his former club here, the Jacksonville Jaguars. With Dylan Denmark, I'm the Hacker Ryan Green. We're in for Baloo. It's a Wednesday night edition of Hacker After Dark. Mark Wise talking Gator hoops and previewing Florida and Alabama. That's next here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. One of the biggest college basketball games in the country comes up in about a half an hour or so out in Tuscaloosa, Florida, and Alabama. Two teams ranked in the top 25, two teams fighting at the top of the Southeastern Conference standings. With that, let me welcome in my friend Mark Wise. You see him all over the ESPN family of networks. In fact, he recently called the Florida-Georgia game. He's got Florida again coming up on Saturday, and he's taking time out for us here right before tip-off this evening. Mark, how we doing? I'm doing great, but I got to tell you, Hacker, you've only got about 30 minutes to get me on some plane so that I can go watch this game tonight. Um you know, both teams score a lot. Alabama, you know, a prolific three-point shooting team. A lot of fireworks, I would think, in Coleman tonight. Mark, you and I talked prior to the Rupp Arena game for the Gators, and at that point, Florida was on the bubble. You know, they were okay, but they had lost some really interesting games and things weren't going great. And I don't know what happened. Other than blowing the A&M game, which, let's be honest, they did, they've been perfect since that moment, what was that, three weeks ago now, 
you've called a lot of their games. What right. is so different about Florida now than maybe two months ago? Well, I think uh, people have gotten really comfortable in their roles. Uh, let's take Walter Clayton Jr. He's, he's been over 20 in four of the last five games. He, he's kind of uh, um, embraced the role that I need to be the, the lead scorer for us every night. Uh, in terms of the Florida perspective, Zion Pullen, when you and I talked before, I said by far he's the best player that Florida has. That has not changed any. And then the bouncy bigs, and they got a, you know, a, a, a X factor performance from Halk uh, last weekend in terms of going for a career high 17. So I think the role. Uh, de- definition has gotten more refined, and, and as a result of that, uh, they, they're not turning the ball over. And, of course, that will be crucial here starting in about 30 minutes because you don't want to give a team like Alabama any free points because they're going to score enough on their own. You know, I don't know if they're Craig Brown and Dan Cross or Torian Green and <laughs> Lee Humphrey, but I got to tell you, Mark, Walter Clayton and Zion Pullen – and it's only been, yeah. what, 20 or so games. It's been a very small sample. But, man, that's a pretty good guard combo that Florida hasn't had in quite some time. I couldn't agree more. Um, again, I, I've sang Pullen's praises all season long. Clayton just seems to be getting more and more comfortable playing with Pullen. And it's probably um, uh, the timing is right from a year perspective because the SEC, in my opinion, has some dynamic backcourts. I mean, whether you're talking about Mark Sears and and Rylan Griffin at Alabama or whether you're talking about Cooper and Johnson at South Carolina, uh, Radford and Taylor at A&M and so on and so on. I mean, this league has great, great backcourts. Mark Wise, the ESPN family of networks here with us on 1010XL talking Florida and Alabama tip-off out in Tuscaloosa about 30 minutes or so away to the bouncy bigs, as you refer to them. Uh, I love everything about Han Lockton. I I understand why he was the freshman of the year uh, for Marshall last year. Tyree Samuel is great other than the free throw line. He's To me, right. he's a Donnell Harvey that can score is the way I look at him. Um, and then, you know, the two guys off the bench, the youngsters and how and, and Condon, boy, they seem to really be finding themselves. I don't know how many teams in the country, Mark, that have four legitimate bigs, but the Gators certainly do. Yeah, they do. Uh, the depth part of that is really unique. Uh, it was interesting, and I made this comment on air the other day at Georgia. You've got this huge game. It, it's actually a resume builder because it's a quad two uh, game uh, this late in the season. And down the stretch, the two freshmen were on the floor and stayed on the floor in terms of Condon and Hauk. And, of course, Hauk goes for the 17. Condon hits the three-point shot. What was the play of the game? What? ended up being the play of the game because that was a five-point play that Florida was able able to cash in on. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, when, when you talk about when, – when I look at a team, I want to ask this question. How many different ways can your team beat my team? And as the season has gone along, Florida has expanded the ways that they can beat other teams. You know, we talk so much about the new guys, and I think everybody I just listed off, those six were not on the roster last year. The veterans of this group are Riley Kugel 
and Will Richard. And sometimes early in the year you forgot because uh, they were struggling, but clearly Kugel and Richard both have definitely come on as of late. Well, they've had very uneven years for different reasons. Uh, Kugel from a scoring perspective, Richard from a shooting perspective. Um, they've almost become wild cards for Florida, and Florida doesn't need both of them to play well on the same night, but one of them has to play well on any given night. So from that perspective, it's just another piece of the puzzle. But I come back to this. I've said this all season long. Pulling is the piece of the puzzle that makes all the other pieces for Todd Golden fit very snugly. And there's no doubt about that. And look, sometimes I think that Pullen, particularly in close games, he might need to remember to pass the ball. I go back to Texas A&M. That was rough because he kept pulling up for 17-footers and he wasn't making them. But I'll take but, that but, if I if I get Hacker, the good look pulling. Look at his numbers. Look at his numbers. You're going to live with that. Yeah. I, I, I don't have any problem with pulling shooting any late-game situation. None. Zero. You know, you and I talk year after year, and, and some people don't like it, some people do, but it's the reality, and it's the transfer portal. And we just right. listed off eight Florida Gator players, the eight guys that are basically in the rotation every game. Six of them were not in Gainesville last year, either because they're true freshmen or because they're transfers. But that's the way it works now in college basketball. You need to learn to accept that. You know who complains about the transfer portal? in terms of a fan base, those teams that aren't winning. <laughs> yeah. Because if you're winning, nobody cares. I call them the newbies. That's the combination of the transfers and freshmen. And I got to tell you, Hacker, I, 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 every team that I've done this year, whether it be somebody in the SEC, the American, I did a big South game last week. I mean, they've all got six, seven, eight newbies. So it's just the way that I don't see how it's going to change anytime soon. Mark Wise, the ESPN family of networks, talking college basketball with us here on 1010XL. Mark, there was questions about Todd Golden, certainly after last year and the first part of this year. Now, you don't want to jump to too, too uh, big a conclusion here, but it's almost as if Todd Golden is justifying his hire with the way the Gators have played in the last month. Well, there's two things uh, about evaluating coaches, I think, anymore. One, and probably more important than any other, we used to talk about it recruiting. It's not recruiting anymore. It's, it's roster building. And that's the, the combination of, of newbies. And certainly they got a lot better in areas that they needed to get a lot better in. They'll have to do, do it again next year because Poland won't be around. So they're going to have to find another point guard and, and move in that direction. But guess what? That's where everybody is. And then the second part of that is coaching your team and getting them to buy in, get, getting role development, uh, role definition. And I think um, that that's gotten significantly better as the season goes along, and the, and the whole coaching staff deserves credit for that. Lenardi, Joe Lenardi in his latest Bracketology has Florida at a 7. At the time, you and I are talking, they're 18-7, and seven, they're 8-4 and four in the conference and again, yeah. not to get too far ahead of the story, they got six games left. Three right. of those games are against the two worst teams in the SEC in Missouri, yeah. and they have two against Vanderbilt. You would hope that they at least win the two home games. Who knows what happens in Nashville? If they could find a way to win one of these two Alabama games, Mark, potentially you could be looking at 21 or 22 wins and maybe you know a six seed or, dare I say, even a five seed. Well, again, not to get too far ahead, but all quad one opportunities are, are kind of 
built the same. And so I think they've got three quad ones left and three or three resume builders, three resume protectors. You, you have to win the three resume protectors. No question about that. Why is that important? Because there are only six teams in the country, Ryan, who have zero losses, no warts on their uh, resume in quads two, three, or four. Now, check out this list. Houston, Purdue, UConn, San Diego State, Florida, Auburn. Wow. So no, no warts on your, your resume. So that's important. Now, the, as it relates to the other three quad one games, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but Florida lost a quad one win last night when Pittsburgh got waxed at Wake Forest and they fell out of the top 50. Florida did have three quad one wins. Today, today they only had two. So uh, I think one more quad one win the two games against Alabama, the road game against South Carolina. By the way, South Carolina has, has been a great story. They have a brutal, brutal schedule down the finish to the finish line in SEC play. So maybe if they can go four and two, um, you know, a six, seven seed, I think that's possible. But five would be way too far of a jump. Final moments with Mark Wise of the ESPN family of networks. Mark, Alabama, Gator fans will be very familiar with them. They play them twice yeah. in the next two weeks. Obviously a tough ball game tonight anytime you're on the road in an environment like Tuscaloosa, although it's interesting, a 6 o'clock local tip in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. That, that's kind of odd. It's 7 Eastern, 6 Central. What do you make of the Crimson Tide? What's Florida facing tonight? Well, I think the number 12 um, becomes really important for Florida. I think Alabama figures to win the three-point differential battle. Uh, they they make in league play, they make more than 12 a game. Um, I think Florida needs to keep it at 12 or under. So if, let's say, Bama makes seven, Florida needs to make at least six. If Bama makes 13, Florida better make nine, and so on and so forth. Then Florida figures to win the rebound margin. That also needs to be by 12 or more. And points in the paint, Florida needs to win that battle by 12 or more. Alabama plays a four-guard lineup a lot. They're not a great rebounding team, but, man, they come at you offensively um, in terms of, of the way that they can get on runs. 10-0, uh, 13-0, 17-3 run. I mean, they do this all the time. You better be there on the catch. And what makes it difficult guarding Alabama when you have to guard Alabama, I'll, I almost think you have to dare them to make twos all night long, overcommit, which is so counterintuitive to the way we've taught defense for the last 30 years. But you've got to overcommit. Don't worry about gap coverage. Don't worry about um, getting into the lane to help out on the weak side. Make sure that you're always there on the catch. And then if they make their 13 or 14, then you, you, you applaud them and say, well done. I don't like this saying, and I'm going to speculate that you don't either, but I'm going to ask you anyway. For Gator fans that believe this game is a house money game tonight in Tuscaloosa, yeah. you're not expected to win. If you win, it's gravy. If not, you kind of expect to lose. What's your reaction to that? Oh, I, I, I think there's validity to that. I mean, uh, that's why it's, I thought that Georgia winning the Georgia game on the road was so important because it will allow uh, Florida to kind of go in, uh, I think, a little bit looser, or I think they should go in a little bit looser. But 
you know, college basketball, if you want an example of how hard it is to win on the road, the number one team in the country who I think has a legit shot at repeating back-to-back NCAA titles, they just went to Creighton and got waxed last night. How does that happen? It happens because of the three-point line. I think Creighton made 14 and UConn made three. And you're on the road against the second-best team in the uh, Big East. So, yeah, it would be a tall order tonight. I'll be more curious to see how Florida might be able to learn from this game when the 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 when Alabama comes back to Gainesville what in, in two weeks, I guess. Mark, final question. Three weeks ago, you and I talked about what was the best conference in college basketball. I'm not okay. sure if it's a debate anymore. I guess the Big 12 has an argument but man alive, and I'm not even being an SEC homer here, isn't the Southeastern Conference right now the best conference in America? Well, here's the way I will put that. Um, you, you know I'm from Kentucky, so I'm going to go to my horse racing roots. Uh, these are the two conferences that are going neck and neck down the stretch and will be in a photo finish of some sort. And whoever is, is in third place is way back, way back. So it is simply, if you're arguing about the two conferences, I don't think there's any doubt which two you're talking about. Um, I, I think the only way we're going to settle this argument this year is how these two conferences do in the NCAA tournament. We won't know that for another month and a half. Yeah, the crazy thing, Joe Lenardi and his latest bracketology, I believe the number is 18 teams are in between the SEC and the Big 12. Yeah, nine and nine. Absolutely nuts. Mark Wise, ESPN Family of Networks. Mark, you got the Gators on Saturday, right, down in in Gainesville. A home game for me. uh, Got them against Vanderbilt. And, of course, uh, everybody who plays Vandy in Missouri right now are, you know, kind of white-knuckle games because you're supposed to win. I call them just-because games, just because Vandy is 2-10 and in the league or just because Missouri is 0-13, we saw what the scare that they put into uh, Tennessee at home uh, last night. So uh, that game was really close until Dalton Connect went, nah, nah <laughs> I think this I think this has gone on long enough. And he, he had a really struggling first half. Well, when they needed him with about 15 minutes to go, he put on a seven-minute, okay, this game's over, I'm taking over, and he did. And Mark Sears... Mark Sears for Alabama, we would be talking in a lot of years about him being the MVP of the league. Now, I think, you know, again, Connect is is the front runner right now. But Mark Sears has had a sensational – his shooting numbers are off the charts for a guard, for a guy whose hands the ball is in so much of the time. He makes great decisions. He can – he can score at three different levels. Now I say that, I mean, he, I'm counting his third level as, as the free throw line. Alabama takes no mid-range jumpers. Watch that here starting in about 20 minutes or so. They take zero, zero, zero two-point mid-range jumpers. It'll be interesting to see. Again, it's the first of two over the next couple of weeks. Florida and Alabama, a battle of two top 25 teams tonight in Tuscaloosa. My friend Mark Wise of the ESPN family of networks, and you will see Mark on the call Saturday for Florida and Vanderbilt there on the SEC network. Mark, I know you're busy. Thank you, my friend. We'll do it again soon.
Thanks, enjoy the game. Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. Yes, it is. In for Rick Ballou the rest of the week here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Again, thank you to my friend Mark Wise. You see him all over the ESPN family of networks calling college basketball as we previewed Florida and Alabama, a 7 o'clock tip tonight out in Tuscaloosa. And again, you'll see Mark on the call Saturday for Vanderbilt and Florida over on the SEC Network. More in the college game coming up on the football side of things later on in the 7 o'clock hour. To the Jaguar side of things in one moment, uh, Denmark, I got to tell you something, man. Uh, You obviously have not experienced this yet. Uh, Maybe one day you will, uh, hopefully. I guess that's the plan, right? Uh, So I drop a little hack off this morning at his VPK class, and Wednesdays in our neighborhood are trash day, right? The trash man comes around and, and collects the garbage. And Little Hack has an absolute infatuation with garbage, all right? Take your biggest hobby, multiply it by about 50, and that's what my four-year-old thinks about the garbage man and the garbage truck. Same thing with recycles. I mean, he even started doing a podcast, Forrest Talks Trash. I think we've had like three episodes. He loves just talking about garbage. It's kind of weird, but he loves it. He'll break down trash, recycle, bulk pickup, yard waste. I mean, you name it. He is a trash guy. But the unfortunate thing about mornings like today are the garbage men don't really check our schedule. So when we're pulling out of the neighborhood to go to school, what happens? The garbage man is pulling in the neighborhood. Right, row. And Forrest saw him, and it was a Category 5 meltdown of historic proportions. I was He was pleading with me to turn around, I had to, he had to go see the garbage man and the garbage man honks at him. It's a whole big deal every week. Long story short, I get to the school today and I'm sure this has happened to most parents that are listening. This was my first experience with it. Denmark, my man wouldn't get out of the car. So he was so hurt. The teacher comes to get him out, right? And he wasn't moving. All right, so... I mean, at this point, I'm in a car line with 50 cars, and my man is grabbing a hold of my arm, grabbing a hold of the steering wheel. I mean, it is a full-blown tantrum. So I didn't really know what to do other than shut the door because he's still in the car. I pulled around to one of the parking spots so I would get out of the way of the other 50 parents that were probably cussing me at this point. And as a dad in any situation, particularly one like this, there was literally only one thing I could think of. Do you have any idea, Denmark, what that might have been? Find a trash can near you. That's actually not a bad idea, but it wasn't so much the trash can as you wanted to see the garbage man, and there was no garbage man there. So when when you're out of answers and your four-year-old is going nuts and Category 5 meltdown, there's only one thing logically to do. You call your wife. And I say, Heidi, what in the heck am I going to do here? He is going nuts. 
Now, to the credit of the school over there in Mandarin, one of the teachers came out, got him, calmed him down, something dad couldn't do. Dad was freaking out. I'm like, how am I going to get this kid in this school? He is furious pissed right now. But they calmed him down, they got him in, and apparently he had a great day. So I have never had to deal with a tantrum of that type of proportion particularly when the only reason that it happened was because he couldn't see the garbage man in our neighborhood. It was, it was unbelievable. If it would have been 20 more seconds, he would not have seen that garbage truck pull in and there would not have been any problem. See, you got to do a better job of distracting him to look the other way, to look at, I don't know, like a whatever's in the yard. Yeah, but he knows, man. That. He knows Wednesday mornings. I mean, he's looking. It's like a, a co-op situation. He's looking out this window and that window. He knows that on Wednesday mornings, that garbage man, it's to the point where if he's gone to school, he wants his grandmother, my mother, bless her heart, to take a video of the garbage man getting our garbage so that he can watch the video. So he has embraced the lifestyle and he's very good at recycling. Uh, I'm sure folks at Waste Management are very happy to hear about all this. But good heavens, it was awful this morning. So that's how my day started. This was back at 8.30 a.m. this morning. So it couldn't have started much worse within reason. But thankfully, it all worked out. And kudos to the teachers over there at his VPK class. They're obviously much more used to tantrums than I am because they were able to calm him down because I was freaking out. I was calling the wife. I said, what am I going to do about this situation? But next time I know, just... Get the teacher out there, and she'll take care of it. So kudos to them, and kudos to everybody at that school. Kudos to the Jaguars for being one of the up-and-coming teams in the league, right? So we thought coming into 2023. Now the collapse, as we've talked about, they are the sixth team since the year 2000 that started 8-3 and three and missed the playoffs. I guess that's a badge of honor in 25 years, or I guess 24 years. Only five teams before them had gone eight and three and missed the playoffs. So if you want something to, I guess, be happy about, maybe you can be happy about that. But the offseason is going to get here very quickly. Very, very quickly. We got franchise tag windows between now and March 5th. So we are in Josh Allen watch. Next week, the scouting combine up at Indianapolis, which is obviously a big deal. And then we are 19 days away. 19 days away, Monday, March the 11th, is the unofficial start of NFL free agency, the legal tampering period, as they call it. And Penn can meet paper three weeks from today, Wednesday, March the 13th. When it comes to the Jaguars, the first domino that we're waiting for is Josh Allen. All indications are it's going to be a franchise tag. And I had people asking me today, well, the franchise tag window's open. It opened yesterday. Why wouldn't you franchise him when it opens? Well, you're trying to work out a deal. The Jaguars don't necessarily want to put the franchise tag on him. A lot of teams don't necessarily want to use the franchise tag. That's why you have a two-week period between February 21st and March the 5th to try to work out a long-term deal. Although normally when it gets to this point, a long-term deal is probably not going to happen in the next 11 or 12 days. It looks like the franchise tag is going to happen. So that's the first domino. Josh Allen, more than likely, 
will be franchised at some point in the next 12 days. The next question then, what happens to Calvin Ridley? I find it interesting that you talk to people in Indianapolis. They believe Michael Pittman Jr. is going to be franchised. You talk to people in Cincinnati, they believe T. Higgins is going to be franchised. And if Higgins and Pittman are franchised, the free agent wide receiver room dries up very quickly. Calvin Ridley's value will go higher and higher if Pittman is franchised and if T. Higgins is franchised. Does Jacksonville want to keep Calvin Ridley? Well, that's the million-dollar question. I believe they do if the number's right. And I believe we're going to know their thoughts about Calvin Ridley's future maybe sooner rather than later. Did you see this story yesterday? Pro Football Focus, Brad Spielberger, who we actually had on, what, two weeks ago, and he kind of laid this out then, lists one potential salary-saving cut for every NFL team. And when he did this in regards to the Jaguars, he had wide receiver Zay Jones as a guy that could potentially be cut to save some money against the cap. Here is my thought on that. I've heard the name Zay Jones a lot when it comes to cap casualties. I've heard Rayshon Jenkins, Brandon Sheriff, Foley Fadakasi, maybe even Cam Robinson, although I think there's a bigger question there. The Jaguars are going to cut some of these guys. It's a foregone conclusion. Do you realize they're right now $11 million under the cap? If they were to cut Darius Williams and Cam Robinson, they would go from $11 million under the cap to $39 million under the cap. But, of course, if you cut Cam Robinson and you cut Darius Williams, you have to have a plan to replace them. Back to Zay Jones. I think Calvin Ridley and Zay Jones directly affect one another. If the Jaguars believe that they're going to get something done with Calvin Ridley, well, yeah, maybe Zay Jones then could be a cap casualty. But if they don't cut Zay Jones in the next 19 days, what does that tell you about how they feel about Ridley? Because I can tell you this. They're not losing both of them. You're not going to cut Zay Jones and then lose Calvin Ridley in free agency. That's not going to happen. And if it does happen, the offseason's a disaster at that point. You can't lose both of them. Now, if you keep Ridley and you cut Zay, fine. Or if you cu- or if you keep Zay and you lose Ridley in free agency, fine. In a perfect world, you keep both of them. I would be totally fine with Ridley, Kirk, and Zay Jones together because we really didn't see that in 2023. I mean, yeah, Zay Jones came back, and I guess they had a game or two together, all three of them, but either Kirk or Jones were hurt in every game. You never saw healthy Ridley, Zay, and Kirk on the field together, I guess maybe with the possible exception of week one against Indianapolis because Zay got hurt week two, and he was never the same after that. I want to see what it would look like with healthy Zay Jones healthy Calvin Ridley, and healthy Christian Kirk on the field together. We were robbed of that last year. Having said that, back to the initial point. If they cut Zay, I think they're going to feel pretty good about keeping Calvin. If they keep Zay, maybe that puts into more question how they feel about keeping Calvin. That'll be one of the more interesting things to follow over the next 19 days leading in to Monday, March 11th, 
and the unofficial start of NFL free agency. With Dylan Denmark, the hacker Ryan Green with you. One hour down, one hour to go. We're with you till 8 o'clock tonight. We are in for Rick Ballou. Let's continue the Jaguar conversation. A guy that played right here in the city of Jacksonville, nine years in the NFL. My friend Clay Harbor, former tight end for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Let's do Jaguar Josh Allen talk, Calvin Ridley talk, a little bit on Trevor Lawrence. And what is Clay Harbor, a guy that wore the pads here in Duval County, what does he think about this team moving forward? Clay Harbor with you next on Hacker After Dark. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. The NFL offseason, about to get into high gear, man. Franchise tag windows opened up this week. The Combine in Indianapolis is next week, and we are now 19 days from free agency beginning on Monday, March the 11th. With all that being said, let me welcome in former Jaguar tight end Clay Harbor. He's always very good to us here on 1010XL, and we certainly love spending time with him talking Jags and looking around the rest of the National Football League. Clay, how we doing? I'm doing great. I'm sitting here in Chicago. It's actually a, a warm day in Chicago for the for this time of the year. We got about 40 degrees, Ryan, so uh, I know that's not warm for you, but for us here in Chicago, it's a pretty nice day. Yeah, actually, I think it was about 40 when I woke up this morning, warmed up a little bit after that. But it's been cold here this offseason, Clay, because of the way the season ended. I think you and I last Ooh. spoke around midseason for the Jaguars, and at that point, things were going great, right? Eight and three, and things were wonderful. But my gracious, I mean, what did you make of the collapse here from eight and three to flat out missing the playoffs? Yeah, it was tough. I think it all started, you know, you saw Trevor uh, get a little banged up there. And uh, I think that's tough when you're going out there playing for injuries. I'm not trying to make excuses, but when you're playing with injuries, that changes a lot of things. And then obviously you see Christian Kirk get hurt. Zay Jones is banged up. So a lot of his weapons were injured too. So you weren't seeing the same team that you saw early in the year. And I think hopefully, you know, you get back, you're able to re-sign Josh Allen or franchise tag him is what seems likely as they work towards a contract and then maybe, uh, you know, make some other moves to bring in a couple more weapons here. I'm not sure really what it looks like with, with Calvin Ridley, but in my opinion, uh, it was just, I think injuries had a big thing to do with it. Obviously the defense wasn't what you wanted. And I think they made a good, a good hire in Ryan Nielsen. I think he's a guy that has a great reputation around the league and, and people really respect him, and that's an improvement. But I think it's tough to get off those slides. Back in 2022, I was actually on a team with uh, with Doug Peterson, and we went through a similar uh, a similar slide. We were with the Eagles, and we lost uh, seven straight games after after starting the year uh, pretty solid with Coach Andy Reid, and that was his last year in Philadelphia before he got fired. Coach Peterson was the quarterback coach. And for some reason, it just seemed like, no matter what we did, we, we made the mistakes at the wrong time. There's nothing you can put your finger on when you're a player. It's not like you go out there and 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 you you just it's just blowout games or whatever. But for some reason, in those kids, it just seems like the ball is funny. It's shaped weird. You know, it's just bouncing the wrong way for you. And I feel like a lot of that is what happened with the Jaguars this year. I still got faith in Trevor. I still got faith in, faith in Travis Etienne. I think they really need to improve this offensive line. But I, I think the team, the, the, the base here, the, the, the structure is still a winning team that can compete for the AFC South. 
former Jaguar tight end Clay Harbor. Clay, I want to get into the offseason, but final thought on 2023. You played tight end in the NFL for many years. You can appreciate what Evan Ingram did, 114 catches, uh, only two shy, I believe, of the record, right, for tight end catches in a single season. He uh, tied Jimmy Smith as far as the only two Jaguars in franchise history to have over 100 catches in a single year. I mean, boy, Evan Ingram really earned that money this season. No, absolutely. Evan Ingram, almost 1,000 yards, 114 catches, you know, the four touchdowns. I mean, he's a guy that, that I really like. And the things the thing I like about him is just his versatility. He can line up in so many different places, and Doug does such a good job of getting him the ball. When you got the injuries to guys like Christian and Zay, you really saw Evan Ingram step up. He's a guy that you, you come out of the huddle, you got two tight ends on the field, and maybe think it's going to be a too tight set. But no, Evan Ingram can line up outside. He can line up in the slot. He can line up in the backfield and, and do some things from there. So to me, his versatility is huge. I love how he's really taken back his career. The guy's a hard worker. I was down there for training camp. He's one of the first guys on, one of the last guys to leave. You ask anybody on the Jaguars team, they'll tell you he's one of the hardest working guys. And to me, those are the guys that I respect. You know, the talented guys that are just – you know, out there and they live off their talent, you know, good for them. But Evan Ingram is talented, but the way he worked himself into the player he is now is very impressive. It's very inspiring. I think he's going to keep getting better because of the way he works, because of what football means to him. You watch him practice. You see the things he does, how he goes about his routine. So for me, I'm very impressed with Evan Ingram. I think he's going to keep getting better. He's not a crushing blocker, but he's a guy that gives effort. And to me, that matters to a guy with over 100 catches, still out there giving effort in the blocking game. Very impressive. Can't say enough good things about Evan Ingram. All right, Clay, moving forward, and you mentioned it, the blueprint for the offseason, the first domino to fall, will be the Josh Allen situation. The franchise tag window has opened this week. It runs through March 5th, so we're going to know by March 5th if Josh Allen has been re-signed long-term or if he gets the tag placed on him. Either way, though, it's imperative, right, that Josh Allen is a Jaguar in 2024? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's 17 and a half sacks. I mean, this guy has created a lot of things for Trayvon Walker because he's not able to get double teamed. I think you, you really have to bring back Josh Allen. And obviously it looks like, you know, he could be leaning towards a tag. I know I was listening to a uh, interview the other day and I mean, it was, this was a couple weeks ago, maybe or a week ago. And Trent Balky said he hasn't, hadn't even started contract negotiations with Allen yet. And I was a little shocked because, you know, typically with guys like that, you're doing contract negotiation, maybe even throughout the season, you're trying to get him extended. As soon as the season ends, you're talking contract. And for that to be a part of the conversation that he hadn't really, they hadn't been really working towards that yet was surprising. So I think that maybe it's something you, you saw with Evan Ingram, you know, you get him with the franchise tag and then you're able to work out a long-term deal because to me, he's a guy you want here for a long time. He was, he was drafted here. He's a guy that's built himself up here. He's worked hard. The, the, he's good in the locker room. The players like him. I think with Ryan Nielsen coming in, he'll be a big piece. And these pass rushers, they're not easy to find. And they're going to get paid. There's no way around it. Okay? You got to pay the pass rusher. And to me, Josh Allen is one of the best at doing that. Clay, players hate the franchise tag. All right? Every year. I mean, they, they just don't like it. And my concern is, could that get sticky between Allen and the organization, if they place the tag on him, 
could we see issues into the summer and maybe even into training camp? Oh, yeah. It depends on how he responds to it. Players don't like it. I mean, you saw Chris Jones. He got franchise tag. He missed a game. He didn't come to one thing in the offseason. He missed a game. Guys respond differently to it. They want the long-term deal. And, I mean, I don't blame them. If you if you underplay your contract, you're going to get cut right away. And you, you overplay your contract. You're ready to get paid. And you only get that one year. You want that long-term sustainability on the contract because you never know when you can get injured and you know this is my value and we play a sport which every play unfortunately could be your last so i don't see josh allen as the type of player just uh being around the jaguars organization the way i have as a as a guy that would would cause the trauma not show up just because he got tagged but you never know. And sometimes these agents get these guys ears. See, Hey, you got to hold out. If you want the contract, you got to take back some leverage. They're not going to pay you unless you're not there. You're, you're holding out. Obviously you want Josh Allen to learn the new defense. You got a new defensive coordinator, new defensive staff. So he's got a little bit of leverage if he does hold out because they're going to want him there. I don't think he's that type of player to do that, but you know, you got to take care of yourself first. Unfortunately, sometimes in, in, in this situation, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I just don't see it happening. A couple of more for former Jaguar tight end Clay Harbor here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Clay, that brings us to Calvin Ridley. Now, if Josh Allen gets tagged, odds are Ridley will then hit the market on Monday, March the 11th. And if you look at the rumors, Michael Pittman looks like he's going to get franchised in Indianapolis. T. Higgins likely to get franchised in Cincinnati. Ridley's value just goes up and up and up as he and Mike Evans will look like they're going to be the two main wide receivers, number one caliber guys to hit the market. Uh, what are your thoughts on Ridley? Did you see enough out of him to want him back in Jacksonville? And if he hits the market, how hard will it be for the Jaguars to retain him? No, I thought, I thought Ridley had a solid year. I don't think he had a great year. I mean, there was a number of drops there, Ryan, that, that, that he had. And, you know, you look at the, 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 the numbers, and I'm not a big numbers guy, but passer rating when targeted. I mean, Etienne, Kirk, Ingram, Jones, everybody had a better passer rating when targeted than um, Calvin Ridley. He had an 89 pass rating when targeted, which isn't bad. He only had a 36% contested catch ratio, but he had an 84 drop percentage, which to me is too high. Evan Ingram had a 5%. Zay Jones had a 2.9%. Christian Kirk had a 6 We almost had a 9% drop percentage. That's not good enough. The one thing I do like about Ridley, and there's more than one thing, I think he's a great route runner, and I think that he is a diligent worker again. This guy's all football. And, I, you know, I go back to – I was talking about Evan Ingram on the field at training camp, but, you know, you watch players. And what I do when I go out there, and I want to see how these guys work. You know, back in my day, to me, what always seemed to be a constant was the guys that work and take the stuff serious are the guys that are going to be good. And Calvin Ridley's all ball, man. He goes out there. He's he's one of the last guys to leave, the first guy out there. And when he's there, he is locked in. He wants to be great. He wants to be good at football. I know he had some drops this year. And like you said, the wide receiver crop isn't what it what it has been in the past with Michael Pittman, T. Higgins, you know, besides those guys that could get Michael Evans, they could get franchise tags. There's not much there. The draft looks good, though. But 
in my opinion, Calvin Ridley is a guy that works his tail off, but obviously you got the, the, the escalator that went from a conditional fourth to a third with the, the amount of snaps and in play Calvin Ridley had this year. Then if you resign him before the end of the league year, second rounder, obviously there's a way around that. You wait to resign him until after the league year and you still uh, give up a third round pick to the Falcons. So I could see that happening. I wouldn't be upset either way if he's gone or if he comes back because the guy is a worker. But I do think he's got to improve. He had a lot of drops this year, a lot of big plays that could have changed the Jaguar season. There's a thought that Zay Jones potentially could be a cap casualty. The way I'm looking at it, Clay, we're going to know what the Jaguars think about the future of Ridley with what they do with Jones. I mean, if they think Ridley's in the future plans, maybe then you cut Zay to save that money. If they think they're going to lose Ridley, you can't cut Zay, right? There's no way you can lose both of those guys. Yeah, Zay Jones had a tough year, but I think the PCL injury had a big, you know, big read. When, when they signed Zay Jones, he never had over 600 yards. He had a breakout career high year last year. But then this year, the injury bug really got him, and he's, he's expected to get over $10 million. So you never know what these guys are thinking. You're, you're absolutely right, Ryan. But whatever we see happen with Zay, I think will tell you what is going on with Ridley because I'm not sure with the cap situation they're in. I think they got $11 million something to spend and that obviously we've all heard about how the cap should be rising this year because of the amount of money the NFL takes in. So the cap should be bumping up, which will give teams more money to spend. But I think that 10 million for Zay Jones, if you're going to pay that, you're not bringing back Ridley and putting all that into the position. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That'll be very telling. Final moments here with former Jaguar tight end Clay Harbor. Clay, it's interesting after Allen and Ridley, you could argue the third biggest free agent, was only here for eight games, and that's Ezra Cleveland, who they got at the trade deadline. That interior offensive line is a problem, man. They were not good. And I like Luke Fortner. I think he belongs on the NFL roster. I'm not sure if he's a starting center. Brandon Sheriff, I think father, you know, time is getting the best of him. Uh, we'll see about Ezra Cleveland. And then there's a question about Cam Robinson. Very good, but you could save $17 million against the cap if you cut Cam Robinson. So they got some serious questions to answer on the offensive line here in the next three weeks. Yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. I, I agree with you. I think that uh, Fortner wasn't good enough this year. I think that, uh, you know, he was a problem. I mean, he, he gave up like 28 pressures, according to Pro Football Focus, and uh, a bunch of hits and hurries. But, you know, overall, I think that Cam – would be tough to get rid of just because I know you got, you know, Antoine Harrison and, and, you know, obviously Walker, but still, I mean, one of those guys go down, you need depth at that position, but the interior offensive line was just horrendous this year. Fortner. Yeah. Maybe he could be on a roster, but a, a guy in the draft like Jackson powers, Johnson, maybe you sign a free agent center, but you need a center there. And I know Shatley's a, uh, a free agent. I wouldn't mind bringing him back for depth purposes, but, I think you need to retool that entire interior offensive line. I think Sheriff had was dealing with some uh, some injuries, but you know I, I like his game. I'm not sure if he's worth exactly what you're paying him right now, the way he's been playing. But uh, you definitely need to do some things in your offensive line because your quarterback just doesn't have a chance if you're getting pressure up the middle. It's the worst thing for a quarterback. So in my opinion, you're absolutely right again that. Center is a, is a big deal this year, and I think there's some guys in the draft. I was out in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. 
Jackson Powers Johnson is a guy that I think could be available for the Jaguars that could be a franchise center and could really be a stability point in the, in the middle of that offensive line. Clay, I want to end with the Bears. Final Jaguar question. Another guy that they could cut that would save some real money is Darius Williams. I saw a Sports Illustrated article today that said the Jaguars should cut Cam and Darius Williams. They would go from $11 million under the cap to $39 million under the cap just by simply mm-hmm. making those two moves. You think Darius Williams is worth the $11 million that they would owe him? I think Darius Williams is a, is a talented player, and he's, he's had some ups and downs just like everybody else on that Jaguars roster. But that's another tough one because if, if you cut him, you're, you're going to have to have a plan. You know, you, you can't just cut Darius Williams and not have a plan. I think he had a solid year. I, you know, he gave up a, a 69 pass rating when targeted. He had 15 pass breakups, four interceptions. I mean, the guy only gave up a 59% reception percentage. So I think that he was a good player. He had a solid year. And if, you, if you're really thinking about moving on from this guy, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have something that you think will come through because you don't want to do things that make your team worse and losing Darius Williams would make your team worse, and you're making your team worse that didn't even make the playoffs last year. You got beat by a rookie quarterback down the stretch, and then you were competing with a backup quarterback, you know, in the end of the year there. So these teams are just going to keep getting better, and if you're getting worse, it doesn't bode well for you as a team coming into the next season. Former Jaguar Clay Harbor. Clay, leave us with this. You're in Chicago. You're very close to the Bears organization. They're like the center of the NFL offseason right now. Justin Fields apparently unfollowed all of the social media accounts for the Bears. I think Justin Fields' dog even unfollowed Instagram of the Bears, which I thought was interesting. Uh, at least that was what was reported. Uh, what's going on in Chicago? Are they going to draft Caleb Williams? Are they really going to trade Justin Fields? Oh, yeah, it's a foregone conclusion out here. Every, every indication is that you know, Justin Fields is going to get traded and uh, Caleb Williams will be the, the quarterback for Chicago Bears next year. And, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. I don't think Justin Fields was, was given the, the best opportunity to be successful. But, I mean, you can't complain when you, you've given the guy 36 games and you're still unsure. And how often do you have the, the opportunity to be the number one pick in the draft? And hopefully you won't be it again. Some people say you trade back, you get a bunch of ones, you get a bunch of twos, and, and you retool, retool through the draft, you keep fields, maybe get a couple more players like you did last year when you traded the number one pick um, and you got DJ Moore and, and the number one draft pick this year from that deal. So to me, there's more than one path to success, but it looks like Caleb Williams will be the quarterback of the Bears. Everything everybody in Chicago is hearing and, and thing, where, where things are trending right now is what it seems like. But uh, I think Fields will still get an opportunity to be a starting quarterback somewhere. That's a fascinating situation. Chicago, of course, got that pick from Carolina, which looks like an awful pick or a trade for the Panthers based <laughs> yeah. on the way Bryce Young played a year ago. Clay, I know you're busy, man. Thank you for taking time out. Free agency is right around the corner after the dust settles, and we'll see what happens here in Jacksonville. Hopefully we can dial your phone again and get your reaction on what Trent Baalke and the Jaguars accomplish over the next month or so. Thank you, my friend. My pleasure, Ryan. Anytime, man. Phone line's always open for you guys. This is Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. 
Yes, it is. In for Blue, Florida and Alabama battling right now. College basketball, 8.40 to go in the first half. <clears throat> the Gators, 23-20 up on the road right now. Number 24, Florida over number 13, Alabama, 24-20 as another Will Richard free throw goes through. We'll keep you updated again, 8.40 to go in the first half. Speaking of Florida, earlier today, my buddy Jake Wimberly, who was an afternoon show host in Jackson, Mississippi on 105.9 FM, made a little noise when he released his analytics formula for his predictions for the SEC in 2024, and he had the Gators finishing 2-10. and 2-10. and 10. I didn't even know about it until some Gator fans pointed it out to me, but it's picked up some traction. So I called Jake Wimberly earlier today. He's a friend. And he's going to explain to you, Gator Nation, why he thinks Florida's going to be in for the worst football season they've had since 1979. We'll talk to Jake Wimberly next. Hacker After Dark on a Wednesday night in Jacksonville, Florida. And we're glad you're with us. It's 1010XL and it's 92.5 FM. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. College football, spring football starting up very soon across the country. Of course, the very early preseason top 25s are out. ESPN put theirs out last week. I think Florida had nine opponents on that preseason top 25 schedule. It's nuts how hard the Gator schedule is coming into 2024. And with that as a backdrop... Some analytics are going on, and one really stood out to me. I know it stood out to those of you that saw it on social media. My buddy Jake Wimberly is a sports radio host at 105.9 in Jackson, Mississippi, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jake, how you doing? Doing great, Ron. I appreciate you having me on, man. I hope you guys are well. Hey, Jake, we are doing good, and you have your college football hourglass, and you do this with every conference and you started with the SEC and what was interesting about your predictions and you can explain to us the formula you went to go into this you got one undefeated team in the SEC that being the Texas Longhorns at 12 and 0 and then you have fifth or I guess 14 other teams in the middle and at the very bottom of the brand new 16 team Southeastern Conference your data that you put in your formula had Florida at two and ten in twenty twenty four. That's two and ten for the Florida Gators. And that certainly, as you can imagine, got some attention here in Jacksonville. I have no doubt that that probably does. And and you know, Ryan, for full disclosure, when you do stuff like this and um, you know, for a backdrop on the analytics, I've been doing this almost ten years now. Um, just as, you know, kind of an admiration for for numbers. Uh, you know, I'm a civil engineer, formerly of another life and you know, minor in mathematics. So I have a love and kind of a dorkiness for numbers and mathematics and money ball. And there's a lot of other people that do this around the country um, that have their own, you know, kind of way of doing things. And so, you know, when I got into sports talk radio uh, about a decade ago, I started, you know, putting this out. And of course it, it comes in handy with sports gaming and you don't always hit it right. Uh, sometimes you peg it. I pegged Michigan last year back around this time to win the whole thing. Got a little lucky there. Uh, sometimes you get it wrong. So, you know, this, the way I do this for college football and, and again, you know, being in the Southeast, and you, you know, I've known each other now, oddly, about 10 years. Um, you know, we live in an area where college football is king. We love it. The Southeastern Conference footprint, um, we 100% love it. And so, you know, it's, it's time to start rolling out the analytics. So just a little, you know, backdrop on the analytics. And we'll have all of this where you can read about it here in the coming months. 
podcast where you can can get that available. We'll tell you where to do that as well. So what I look at with college football is, is several things. One, obviously, the talent metric on football teams. And, you know, used to, you could quantify, you could go to 247 Sports or you could go to On3 or Scout or wherever you wanted to go, and, and people would quantify ESPN, you know, five-year recruiting metrics or four-year recruiting metrics. So Alabama finishes number one for four straight years. They have the number one class. Um, over four-year period. Um, I've always used a three-year up until this point because it's it's hard to say that, you know, a freshman class is going to be, uh, you know, they're all going to be together when they get seniors. And then now this year, talking with several of our colleagues around the country about, you know, just kind of how do we how do we quantify the transfer portal? How do we look at, you know, talent, you know, as far as that's concerned, plus what, uh, you know, a school may sign with a class. So I've kind of chalked that back to about, Two years plus some, plus a transfer portal uh, number in there as well to come up with a talent metric. So you got your talent metric, then you've also got your quarterback metric, um, you know, returning quarterback play. You've got your coaching metric. Other things that I use, what I call impact ball catcher metric, which kind of references, you know, how strong is your wide receiver room, because I think that's extremely important in college football. And then offensive and defensive scoring efficiency. So all that goes into a hopper creates a number stamp, an identifier for teams, and then we're able to kind of build out schedules and that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you reference Florida, um, you know, as far as Florida is concerned, I mean, they're, they're a middle-of-the-pack SEC team as far as the numbers are concerned, if you wanted to say a power rating inside the Southeastern Conference. Obviously, Georgia, Texas, Alabama, uh, this year Ole Miss, LSU, Tennessee, they're kind of going to live at the top. Florida's in the middle, but Ryan, when I look at Florida, I mean, quarterback play, they're going to be in the upper half of the league. Um, but Billy Napier has just had a tough time down there, and this schedule is is the kicker. Um, and when I look at this, I always – and we'll talk about this here in just a bit, but, you know, the record that I put out there is one thing, and then there's several what I call one-possession ball games where you can kind of make some hay. Some of the Vegas lines I've seen for Florida is around five-and-a-half on win totals. So um, that's kind of how the whole uh, cake is made – and we can talk about how I got to 2-10. and 10. Jake Wemberley, 105.9 in Jackson, Mississippi, here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. His analytics uh, he put out on uh, – he's done this for the last decade. He has Florida finishing at 2-10. and 10. And look, that would be a catastrophe football-wise of epic proportions. But, Jake, I don't know how far off you necessarily are because I look at that schedule, and as I mentioned when we brought you on – ESPN.com did their way too early preseason top 25 and Florida has nine opponents on that list I mean after the cocktail party here in Jacksonville you're playing Texas Florida State Ole Miss and LSU I mean you have to win games Florida has to win games against Miami and Texas A&M and potentially Kentucky to even have a realistic shot in my opinion of going to a bowl game. So even though I don't necessarily agree with two and ten, if you would have put four and eight or five and seven, I think there is certainly an argument for that. So I don't know how far off you actually are. Well, and again, you know, this could vary by two games. It could vary, you know, by, you know, you look at Missouri last year. Missouri was picked bottom of the barrel in the SEC. I mean, Eli Drinkwood spoke about it at SEC Media Days. And then we see what the transfer portal, how that helped them, what a great quarterback, and then a wide receiver with – uh, Burton the third, what he was able to do, you know, his impact. So there may be some players on that Florida team that that populate this year that that kind of flips that record. But you go right out the gate, Ryan, and you know this. I mean, you live in the state of Florida. You've covered it for years. The Miami Hurricanes come in. They have built a heck of a roster. 
Uh, they've got a quarterback transfer in from, from Washington State and Cameron Ward. Florida will be an underdog. Now, if Florida can win that game, that's going to flip the whole script. But Miami's going to be a pretty big favorite in that game. You know, I have Florida losing that game. You go to Sanford, uh, they'll beat Sanford. But then you go Texas A&M. And I have Florida on a one-possession loss, a, a, a very close loss. That game could go either way. Because you got to think, remember this, Texas A&M is trying to rebuild their brand, too. I mean, they open with Notre Dame. They'll play McNeese before Florida. So that'll be a big, big game for both programs. Um, you know, I have them with a very close loss at Mississippi State. That's a game that Florida can go get. And the reason being, Ryan, and as you know this, is, you know, the one thing we can't quantify with football teams is emotion. We can't quantify headspace. Um, you know, that program at Florida, as you well know, I mean, they've, they've had some, some, some tough times over the last couple of years. And, you know, if you go out and you lose to Miami and then you lose to Texas A&M, you have to wonder what's that locker room going to be like. Mississippi State plays Toledo the week before. And I think it's extremely important on who teams play before and then, of course, after different opponents. After the bye week, you referenced it. I mean, Central Florida is going to come in. And, of course, this will be a Super Bowl-type game for them with K.J. Jefferson now at quarterback at Tennessee and Kentucky, in the back half, Georgia at Texas, LSU, Ole Miss, and Florida State, they'll be an underdog in likely most of those games. But that doesn't mean, depending on what this roster is, that they couldn't beat a Kentucky team or Central Florida or Mississippi State. But again, this schedule is by far the hardest that I've seen in a long time and the hardest in the country. Well, and that's the point, too. And I've been saying this really since the schedule was announced. And here in, in Gainesville and Jacksonville for years, Gator fans, Jacob said, we don't want to play the Citadel or we don't want to play Ball State. We don't want to play, you know, directional school U. We want to play the best of the best. Well, okay, this is a situation where be careful what you wish for because sometimes you get it and you may not like the result. You have 11 games now against Power 5 opponents, your eight conference games, and then, of course, Florida State, Miami, and UCF. There is legit conversation, Jake, at least here. I'm curious when you cover the Southeastern Conference as well as anybody out there in the state of Mississippi, you could legit argue to me that this Gator schedule is one of the toughest we've ever seen in college football. There is, without quite, no doubt about it, it's one of the toughest I've ever seen. Look, Georgia wouldn't want to play this schedule. Uh, Texas wouldn't want to play this schedule. Ohio State, I mean, you can go the, the big boys in the country – they wouldn't want to play in Florida. That's a big boy program. There's no doubt about it. Florida doesn't doesn't need to be five and you know five and seven, six and six. They deserve to be uh, up there mentioned with the with the big boys in the in the country. They always have been. But this is a brutal schedule. And you know you have to ask yourself is how how many games can you really get up for? You know Jackie Sherrill when he was at Mississippi State used to say, you know realistically you can get a football team up for three games. You can get them up for the opener. You can get them up for a big one in the middle and the rivalry in the in the end. The rest of it has to be self-motivation. It has to come from within the locker room. And when you are literally playing equal talented teams, you know, Miami's equally talented, Texas A&M is equally talented, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia. I mean, how many weeks in a row can you stay motivated? And if you lose a close game that you don't just fold the tent. And that's the that's that's why the number landed at two and ten is just because I think the, it's not that Florida is two and ten bad. It's that the schedule is suffocating. And I think, that you know, look, if Billy Napier gets to 6-6 six and six this year, you need to give him Coach of the Year award in the conference. Final moments, Jake Wimberly, host of 105.9 out in Jackson, Mississippi. His analytical formula he's done for the last decade. He nailed Michigan a year ago about this time to go on to win the title. He ranked out the entire SEC. He had Florida at 2-10. and 10. 
Jake, you had Texas at 12-0, and 0, and I believe what Georgia and Ole Miss at 11-1. and 1. So, obviously, the conference making a major change, adding Texas, adding OU. You think potentially it could be a memorable year for Texas, year one in the SEC. I do. I mean, you look at what Steve Sarkeesian has built at Texas. Uh, he's built them in the mold of a Southeastern Conference team. And just a couple of years ago, we were asking the questions when Oklahoma and Texas, the word came out that they were joining the conferences. Hey, are they even ready for the conference? Well, they, I mean, you look at Texas, saw a college football playoff run last this past year. And, and look, flip the inverse here. Look at their schedule. Um, Colorado State for the opener, they go to Michigan, but they get gifted a Michigan team that lost Jim Harbaugh. J.J. McCarthy, Blake Corum, they, that team has been gutted. Uh, UTSA, Louisiana Monroe, Mississippi State, they get a bye week. Obviously, the Oklahoma game um, you know, in Dallas is going to be big. Georgia, but they host Georgia. And if you don't think Texas fans are going to be ready for that game, maybe that, that is going to be a classic ball game. But then Vanderbilt, Florida after a bye week, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Texas A&M. I mean, and you can go down this road with, with Ole Miss. You can go down this road with Missouri. Their schedules are much more manageable than what Florida has. But back to Texas, I do like this Texas team. You know, I have them undefeated. I could see them dropping a game against Oklahoma. I could see them dropping a game against Georgia. We'll see, you know, what that Texas A&M rivalry, the rebirth of this game comes back to. But I do like the Texas Longhorns at quarterback. Their skill position talent is unbelievable. They play really good defense. And I, and I like where Steve Sarkeesian has this football team. Jake, as we begin to wrap up, and we'll obviously, as the college football season gets closer, I think more people will begin thinking about this, but it's going to be the craziest college football season we've ever seen. I mean, it's the first year of the 12-team playoff, right? And and the playoff itself is going to be almost a month long. I believe it's going to start, you know, right around December 20th and go all the way almost to January 20th. So you're talking an extra four, five, even six weeks of playoff football to dwindle it from 12 down to one so that's crazy in its own right but then as you mentioned Texas and OU in the SEC of course in the Big Ten they're adding Washington and Oregon and USC and UCLA the Big 12 is adding basically every team left over from the Pac-12 and then that big ACC edition of SMU uh, who was it Cal and, and, and Stanford I mean it is absolutely insane what is going to be college football in 2024? You're right out there in the heart of it, out there in Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, how fired up are people for the changes, or is it going to be a growing experience for everybody involved? I think for all the negative that you get from fans on on name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal and collective talk, people are equally as excited about this playoff. I, I will tell you this just in this state. Just you take Ole Miss, for instance, and look at what Lane Kiffin has done coming back off an 11-win season, beating Penn State in the Peach Bowl, returning most of that roster, really living in the transfer portal. This is the most anticipated football season maybe ever for Ole Miss football. I have to go all the way back to Eli Manning's senior year um, at Ole Miss to see this, to remember this kind of anticipation. But to your point, I think it's everybody. I mean, because when you talk about, hey, we've got a shot. I mean, everybody, you know, if you've got a pretty good football team, you may have a shot to land in that top 12 of that college football playoff ranking. So, you know, while some people may, may, you know, believe that the playoff kind of dilutes the regular season, I think it actually adds intrigue to it. Um, you're, you know, even if you're talking about maybe getting in the Southeastern conference championship or, Hey, we've got to win this week, or we may fall out of the top 12 in the playoff. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's going to be really, really fun to watch. And I'll tell you this nationally, and I know we got to get ready to go here. I think nationally the race is wide open. I mean, when you chalk through the numbers that I'm looking at, Oregon has built a heck of a roster. Ohio State is going to be really good. Georgia, 
Texas, Clemson is looking to rebound, Florida State, Miami. I mean, there is a lot of really good football teams. And if you go to Vegas and you always cross-reference with what Vegas is, is putting out there, they tend to agree with that as well. Jake, working to Gator fans, obviously they probably don't like 2-10, and 10, but I think they're curious as to how you got to that. Where can they go find your formula? Where can they read about how you got to that conclusion? Sure, absolutely. You can just – well, first off, you can listen to my show if you feel like doing that. You can stream it on the thezone1059.com, 3 to 6 Central every day, Monday through Friday. The Afternoon Drive, the podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Um, and, of course, uh, you can go to cfbhourglass.com. We don't have written material out on this yet. Um, only just posting numbers and talking about it, but that's coming here in the next month. We'll be doing team previews, all kinds of stuff on the formula. We'll pick a national champion. We'll we'll throw it out, out there, Ryan. And as, as they say in, you know, in, in the food industry, you never trust a skinny chef. We're going to pick a champion. We're going to go play it as always, and uh, we'll put our money where our mouth is. Jake Wimber, who does a terrific job out there in the state of Mississippi, 105.9, and we always appreciate him joining us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jake, thank you, my friend. We'll do it again soon. Brian, absolutely, anytime. Thank you so much. And thank you to my buddy Jake Wimberly, 105.9, out in Jackson, Mississippi. And, yeah, if you – Missed the first part of that interview. Jake, every year, does his CFP hourglass, which basically looks into the future, obviously. Now, last year, he nailed Michigan. I believe in February or March, he said Michigan would win the championship, and he nailed that, so kudos to him. This year, he's doing the SEC as his first conference. He had Florida finishing 2-10 and 10 with his analytics formula. And like we talked about, look, before you – jump off the rails and say that's ludicrous. I don't agree they're going 2-10 and 10 either. But you look at that schedule, honestly, and you find me right now, based on what we know right now, find me five wins on that Gator schedule. Are they going to beat Miami with absolute certainty? Are they going to beat Texas A&M with absolute certainty? Are they going to beat Kentucky or UCF with absolute certainty? And then they're going to be huge underdogs against Georgia and Texas and LSU and Ole Miss and Florida State. I mean, Sanford's probably a win at Mississippi State. Yeah, probably a win, but good grief. I mean, it is a brutal schedule. Again, 2-10 and 10 would be a football catastrophe, but I don't think 4-8 and eight or 5-7 and is out of the question, and if that happens, there's probably going to be some changes down in Gainesville. Well, that'll just about do it for this uh, edition of Hacker After Dark. Appreciate you guys hanging out with us here on a Wednesday. We're in for Baloo the rest of the week here on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We have a ton of people to thank. Again, thank you to my buddy Jake Wimberly, 105.9 out in Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you to former Jaguar tight end Clay Harbor. Always enjoy talking Jaguars and NFL with Clay Harbor. He's one of our guys here on Hacker After Dark, and we certainly appreciate him taking time out for us this evening. And thank you to Mark Wise of the ESPN family of networks. Talked a little Gator basketball, SEC basketball. In fact, Joe Lenardi right now in his latest bracketology has nine teams from the Southeastern Conference in the NCAA tournament. There is a big argument to make that right now, the SEC is the best basketball conference in the country. In fact, the only one that could even argue probably is the Big 12. So it has been a terrific year for the Southeastern Conference, and we certainly appreciate Mark Wise from the ESPN family of networks taking time out for us 
this evening. We will be back tomorrow night on a Thursday, again, in for Baloo, and we will do it all over again beginning at 6 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker, Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for spending part of your Wednesday evening with us right here on Hacker After Dark, on 1010XL, and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Wednesday evening, and we will do it all over again tomorrow night on a Thursday beginning at 6 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.